This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Oral Stein. Bank robbing architect. Procedurals as romances. And the Island of Demons. Well, I sure am glad President Cat greenlit the Catstronauts' mission to expand the International Space Station. I hear he signed the authorization by swatting a pen across the floor. True leadership right there. Giant laser pointers in space? What's not to like? And even better, the space station has live stream cameras, although half the time it's just nose boops. Let's check how the Catstronauts are doing up there on the space station. Oh man, there goes Waffles, the pilot. He's off to see how many kibble bits can achieve orbit around his belly. A pioneer in snackodynamics, that cat. Here comes the kitty technician blanket. Careful, Waffles. If you're caught clogging the air filters with crumbs again, then it's back to litter box duty for you. Wait a second, Robin. Major Meowser just got a hair-raising transmission from HQ. Is that the new napping module on its way? Yep, it's their first space station edition. Science officer Pom-Pom better know what to do, or there'll be a catastrophe in three, two, one. Here she is, and she's sharpening her claws on the instruction manual. Well, it might accidentally flip to the right page with enough swiping, I guess. Look at them working together. Waffles is keeping the station steady with his prodigious belly. Blanket is swatting at the module's fasteners like a feather toy. Pom-Pom finally found the right instructions, and Major Mauser is... napping on them? Teamwork, by golly! Hooray Hooray for for the the Catstronauts! The The space station station is saved. saved! Until the next module arrives and starts another near catastrophe, that is. While managing your own space station with a crew of feline heroes. Now that's the life. You know, you can, Robin. The official Catstronauts board game is launching on Kickstarter from Atlas Games. It's full of possum color art by the comic book's creator Drew Brockington. And Catstronauts features cooperative play that's fun for all ages. Find out more at atlas-games.com slash catstronautsks. Sounds like the Catstronauts board game is... Perfect for the whole family. Let's meet this stellar challenge by backing the Catstronauts board game on Kickstarter. The rattle of dice, the thunk of miniatures, and the eldritch turning of pages of terrible tomes that sent Peter Frampton skittering away in fright tell us that we're once more in the gaming hut. But this time around, at the behest of a beloved backer, Brian Thomas, we've been asked for a very specific scenario idea. Super specific. To wit, how would you make a Trail of Cthulhu, Bookhounds of London one-shot that included Oral Stein and his rivals in the great game, the Diamond Sutra, and the Magao Christian painting? And there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, Trail of Cthulhu, of course, is Pellegrin's gumshoe game of Cthulhu Investigation. Book Hounds of London is Ken's book for that, a, a campaign in which you play skeevy antiquarian booksellers in London. And speaking of people who are a little bit skeevy around books, Ken, you're now going to give us a, a small biography, because we've got a lot to cover, yep. of Oral Stein, someone who saw 
possibly the first printed books that exist in the world, and said, I'll take those. All right. Orlstein is a Hungarian by birth. He was born in 1862. Very shortly, he went to be educated in England and became a British agent is maybe too strong a word, but maybe not. At any rate, things were loosey-goosey back then. You didn't yeah. nail it down exactly what you were doing on behalf of the empire. Right. And uh, he was doing it specifically on behalf of the British government of India, the Raj. And what he was doing was exploring Central Asia, which was very ill-mapped. And so he was sort of an explorer and sort of an archaeologist. And as we will see, sort of a tomb raider. And his four expeditions to Central Asia are 1900 to 1901, 1906 to 1908. 1913 to 1916, and a last expedition in 1930. And 1907 is sort of the big haul relevant to this question, because he visits the Mogao Caves in Gansu Province, China, which is just near the old frontier post of Dunhuang. And a guy who uh, was sort of in charge of the Mogao Caves had just opened up what they called the Library Cave, which had several hundred thousand scrolls in it. And drawn to this news as a moth to a flame was our boy Oral. And when he shows up, the caretaker in charge of the cave is a Taoist monk. And everything in the cave is a Hindu or Buddhist scripture, pretty much. And so he doesn't care about it. And so Oral Stein shows up with some of the Indian government's money. And the Taoist monk says, well, you know, what better way to move further along the Tao than with British money? And well, and I think there's more persuasion. I think it takes a number of steps for Stein to win him over and convince him. You, you said to keep it short, but yes, yeah. Stein claims that what he's doing is retracing the steps of the Buddhist sort of pilgrim and saint Wang Chu, and that that's why he's wandering around looking for enlightenment and where better to find enlightenment than this cool cave full of books? Yeah, so he has a, a good line of palaver and, right. as you pointed out, uh, some money. Yes, yeah, it's the money. And whatever argument works, the larger point is the Taoist supervisor wanders away, leaving all the books unlooked at. And Orlstein carries away the Diamond Sutra, the Mogao Christian painting from our prompt from Brian Thomas, and 24 packing cases of other miscellaneous manuscripts of these as I mentioned, 100,000 scrolls. And the library cave was put in there during the period when Gansu province was under Tibetan rule. And so that's why they were sort of using it as this library of Hindu and Buddhist texts, because they were Buddhists of a sort. And anyway, the Diamond Sutra itself is the oldest dated printed text in the world. It's dated 868 AD. It is a work of, what do I want to say, revealed wisdom, I guess, of uh, the Buddha, the sort of the, the nature of the universe and how you comport yourself in relation to the universe, full of spiritual wisdom and whatnot. And uh, it also, by the way, Robin, is Creative Commons. It says right in the sutra that this is to be distributed freely to everybody, that you're not supposed to keep it to yourself, which I guess maybe means that you're doing what the sutra wants if you bribe the caretaker of the library cave and take it away with you to the British Museum. Yeah, I'm sure that's what that meant. Yeah, that's probably what that meant. Yeah. So anyway, he uh, carries that away. The Mogao Christian painting is a silk painting, which we have about a third or a half of. The rest sort of fell apart in the cave. It's not Orlstein's fault. Um, It shows a mustached, haloed figure making the Vitarka Mudra, which is the mudra that the Bodhisattvas make when they're transmitting teachings, 
And so, so far, so good. He's a bodhisattva, but he's wearing crosses on his diadem and his pectoral. And so the argument is that he represents either Jesus or maybe St. Thomas or some other religious figure of the Nestorian Christian East, which was very, very big in Central Asia until suddenly it wasn't. And uh, he carries that away. Again, that's from probably the same period as the Diamond Sutras, circa 880 AD. And the rest of it, as I mentioned, is lots and lots of other Hindu and Buddhist scriptures and uh, commentaries thereon, as well as one assumes the occasional geography or whatever else. But Orlstein is sort of going through, picking the cream of the lot, has it packed away and carries it away. And after he does this, the caves are descended on by lots and lots and lots of other tomb robbers. Orlstein is the guy who sort of takes away the, the, the plug. And then once the genie's out of the bottle, the caves are ransacked is perhaps not too strong. A he word. establishes the precedent. So anyway, that's the 1906 to 08 expedition. Then in 1914, relevant to our question, uh, he excavates Karakoto in inner Mongolia, which is known as the Black City. That's what that word means. The ruins of it were discovered in 1907 by Pyotr Kozlov. It was ruins because the Ming Chinese had besieged it in 1372 and cut off all the water from it. And guess what? A city in the desert with no water goes away pretty rapidly. And that's what happened. So he's digging out Karakoto, which does not sound too far, Robin, from Carcosa to me. Indeed. And so the great game aspect of this is the political maneuvering among European powers to gain control of Asia. Right. Yeah. And it's Britain versus Russia. There is a Russian guy uh, who sort of is the first little tiny bit of Orlstein's career, a guy named Przewalski, who is now known as the guy who found the Przewalski's horse, for example. But his student, disciple, whatever you want to call him, Pyotr Kozlov, is the guy that excavated Karakoto and was sort of always at the back of the mind, if not of Orlstein, certainly of the of the Indian government, by which I always mean the Raj, not the actual people of India. They had no say in the government at this time. And then his other major rival for prestige and everything else, in addition to working for maybe the Germans or possibly definitely the Germans, is a Swedish explorer named Sven Hedden, who was doing basically the same thing of wandering around Central Asia with dubious cover stories and looting things. And Sven Hedden was sort of the 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 guy who was in the same breath as Oral Stein as the big explorer of Central Asia. And he was, in fact, working for the Kaiser and then was chummy with the Nazis because he felt that Sweden was in danger from the Bolsheviks and the Nazis were the only guys around with an army. But it seems like maybe he wasn't so sad about having to be buddies with the Nazis as you might have been. But anyway, he's Swedish. Then he's organizing a number of very successful explorations of Central Asia, the latter of which is in uh, Mongolia and Xinjiang in 1927 to 1935, which he organizes as the Sino-Swedish expedition. And he gets a sign-off from the Chinese government through means which we shan't go into and is all around this area during the time of Orlstein's final and apparently failed expedition in 1930. Right. However, if this is a Bookhounds of London scenario, it's got to take place in London and it's mm-hmm. got to be about books and uh, different horrible tomes uh, shuffling back and forth. So I think this is where we want to fall upon the uh, disintegration of the 1930 expedition as the essential backstory that this scenario is really about. Right. That, of course, 
uh, Oral Stein has a long history of showing up to places where there are rare books and saying, I'm the guy who can protect this book. He did it in the Magao Caves, and now he comes to a different cave where perhaps other forces have conspired to make sure that there's a book that should not go back to London, and he takes it back to London. Right. So the aspect of various Chinese nationalist forces wanting the Diamond Sutra back I think has to be part of the story because we've been tasked with bringing in the Diamond Sutra, right. the Christian painting. But I, I think the thing that's really going on with all of these people roaming around, backstabbing each other as if they're in the Maltese Falcon, is that there has been basically the uh, Chinese or perhaps Indian equivalent of the Necronomicon, which will have all sorts of different spells in it, perhaps reference of other cosmic horrible deities. And that's the thing that's responsible for the uh, string of murders that are tangentially connected to Orlstein and perhaps directly connected to uh, one of the Game Master character booksellers that you've created for that book. Right. The uh, classic Lovecraftian tome in China is the Seven Cryptical Books of San. So one can imagine that the Seven Cryptical Books of San, there was like a commentary on them that was in the Mogao Caves and was bracketed perhaps by the Diamond Sutra and the Christian painting on the level of, we have to keep this thing, you know, in a spiritually pure containment field. And when Stein carries it away with him, you can maybe go back to even the first translations of the Diamond Sutra in 1912. There's a Japanese scholar working on a translation in 1934 who, if you want to, you know, be bringing the possible notes, ah, oh, this is interesting that the part of this translation was uh, muffed in 1912 or deliberately covered up by the British Museum. And it's about this, you know, a San figure. Right. Or the translation has been changing over time because it's been infected by proximity to the horrible tone. Right. And so you can argue that in 1907, Stein carries it away, doesn't know what he's doing. In 1914, he excavates Carcosa and realizes, oh, this was a bigger deal, and then spends a great deal of his time and effort trying to get back to Central Asia, but through bureaucratic obstructions, or perhaps the ineffable movings of the of the mythos, uh, he's not able to get back until 1930, when he does make a quick dive out of his approved travel route, which is what he gets thrown out of Xinjiang for, to snaffle the actual seven cryptical books of San from the place that sort of the treasure map that he excavated in the Mogao Caves tells him, or where he figured it out from his excavations of Carcosa, it must be, and pulls it back. And this manuscript is coveted not only by rival booksellers, who would know that it's a priceless multi-million dollar text, but all multi-million pound text, excuse me, but also by the Ottenerba and their buddy Sven Hedden. And Sven Hedden is in London on a lecture tour, you know, in between uh, trips, or you can set it in 1935 after Sven Hedden has come back. And this uh, Seven Cryptical Books of San, Stein has had to uh, let it go to fund his trip to Afghanistan. And so now it's floating through the book underworld. And as you say, causing all these mysterious uh, deaths and unpleasantnesses. And the only way to contain it again is to find the containment that was in the, the half of the Mogao Christian painting we don't have and in the Diamond Sutra and build a sort of a, a book containment around it. And then the seven cryptical books of San can be, you know, stored safely or gotten rid of. 
whichever you want to do as bookends. And that's up to you. Right. Um, also, probably the mask that uh, Stein dug up in Carcosa. Uh, perhaps he made the mistake of wearing that mask. Maybe that's what made him go off route. Maybe that's what wrecked his 1930 expedition. And that could be now floating around as a, a separate item, adding another complication and adding, of course, the temptation, as there always is when there's an evil mask from Carcosa. You know, one of the player characters might just want to put that on and, uh, you know, who knows what will happen when they do that. Yeah, the um, the mask could be a straight-up mask mask, or it could be a paper figure or a silk-printed face that is, you know, you can wear it as a mask. Because, look, there's those two uh, holes in the silk painting that almost looks like eye holes for you to peek out of, and that perhaps the silk painting was always meant for the llama to stand behind, like the llama in yellow silk from Lang, and look through, and that's how he sort of channels the forces of Karakoto of Carcosa, but you can still hang that painting and peek through it. And instead of it being sort of a weird funeral mask or something, it could be a cool silk painting similar to the Mogao Christian painting. Well, I think that's as close as we can come to a scenario with that actually sitting down and writing it. So before the threat of that occurs, (laughs) it's time for us to rush across this commercial to see what lies on the other side. Palgrain Press invites you to a reality-shattered masked ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's Tale of Belle Epoque Terror. A Casket at Latil. Village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite Aftermath children's entertainer. And Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home, reality television. Also out now, Legions of Carcosa, the bestiary for the Yellow King. From alien parasites to warped human conspirators. From hungry buildings to incarnations of drought. From gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs. Legions of Carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify, haunt, and menace your investigators. Fresh from the skull-mashed minds of John R. Harness, Kira Magrin, Sam Saltiel and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. The mug shots up on the wall, the fingerprints in the filing cabinet, and the green blotter in front of us, the crime blotter, tell us that we're once more about to enter the world of criminals and criminality. And uh, as is often the case in this segment, we're looking at a, a historical crook and arch criminal if you will, perhaps the sort of uh, real-life template for the heist mastermind 
And can uh, this guy has to be after your own heart oh, yeah. in order to steal it and sell it because he's not just a heist mastermind, but he's an architect by day mm-hmm. and uses his powers of architecture for larceny. And uh, you, I guess, could argue evil. Evil. Although, I guess that depends on on what you feel about people who owned uh, most of the big banks and all the money in the northeastern part of America in the Gilded Age, because right. that's when he's operating. But you can certainly also cast this guy as a uh, sort of, well, he's not a Robin Hood because he's stealing from the rich and keeping, keeping it for it. himself. But yeah. there's certainly a roguish heister quality right. to Like him. Sean Connery in The Great Train Robbery. Yes. So this noblest of artisans, the architect, George Leonidas Leslie, is born in 1842 in Cincinnati. He studies architecture at the University of Cincinnati. His father, to avoid interrupting his studies, pays for him to dodge the Civil War draft. He can buy a substitute for about 300 bucks, which is like $10,000 now. And because Cincinnati is a right-thinking town, in the 1860s at least, he becomes a hissing and a byword, and his fiance leaves him for another man who served. And so he says, the I don't price need this. was higher than dollars. Right. I don't need this attitude. I'm going to go to New York City, where everyone is a contemptible hater of America. So he shows up in 1869. He's still got money and connections. He's buddies with Roebling, the guy that designed the Brooklyn Bridge, because he also built something in Cincinnati, and they were buddies then. So Roebling gives him an introduction to Jim Fisk and Jay Gould, the big financiers, hangs out with them at the Fifth Avenue Hotel, which is a very classy place. And Fisk, and this is the part of the biography that I assume is explicated further in larger biographies of him, but brings him to a party held by Frederica Marm Mandelbaum, who was uh, New York City's leading fence. She deals in stolen goods. That's her job. And with the huge profits of this, she throws parties that attract Jim Fisk. So there we are. Leslie says, this is the opportunity I've been looking for, plays up to Marm and says, look, bank robberies are loud and noisy and fail. I, as an architect, have a better way. And she says, well, I'll give you a gang and you can lead them in a bank robbery. And if it works out, we'll talk. And so, so it's a heist on consignment. Exactly. So she assigns him a crew under a guy named Shang Draper, Thomas Shang, short for Shanghai, because Draper in his day job runs a bar where if you come in alone and look like you don't have connections, he will knock you out with a Mickey Finn and sell you to the Merchant Marines and you'll wake up on a boat in the Pacific. Or, I guess, a boat in the Atlantic, because it's New York. But my larger point stands. A boat, is what we're saying. A boat, yes. Not where you meant to be. And Shane gets into a lot of other unpleasant things, which we, we shan't get into. But what he also does is lead a crew of criminals to help George Leonidas Leslie rob the Ocean National Bank. And what Leslie does is, we're not going to just bust in. I am going to show up. I'm going to befriend the bank manager, because I'm a gentleman and I know Jim Fisk. I'm going to case the joint. I'm going to get the blueprints from downtown because I'm an architect and can do that. Then we're going to build a scale model of the bank. And then we're going to practice robbing the bank in the dark in a warehouse that we will get from Marm. I will figure out what model safe they have by insisting on watching my deposits be deposited. And once I do that, we'll buy the same model safe and I will practice and our professional safe cracker will practice on can we open it in the dark and just to make sure i have a cool device a little strip of tin that 
I will slip into the lock of the safe so that when they turn the combination, it will crimp the tin as the tumblers come down and it will crimp them in the pattern that we need to figure out what the combination is. Right. So this is straight up Ocean's Eleven with straight up hats and big mustaches and cravats. And- Gilded Age Ocean's Eleven. They've One of the members of the, of the gang gets a job as a guard in the uh, bank because beloved customer George Leonidas Leslie has recommended him as a good and sober person. And so that's how he gets in. And so they slip in. They put the little tin strip into the lock. They slip back in and take it back out. Meanwhile, Shangraper is like, when do we get to kill people? And Leslie says, ideally, never. And also, you should wear a dress. Yes. <laughs> Draper. That, that's what you do with the loose cannon yes. in your high school. You distract them by making them cross-dress. Right. And so this begins the ill feeling between them. But they do rob it in June of 1869 of almost $770,000, which is about $27.5 million today. And this, you know, success turns a lot of heads. Leslie insists on keeping half of it. He gives the other half to Marm to distribute to the rest of the gang. And he's set. He gets married to a a nice lady in Philadelphia. He tells her he works for the tax people. And that's why he has to travel a lot and consort with uh, hooligans. And she says, well, that sounds legitimate government work. So it's it's a good life he has in Philadelphia, which he pays for by his bank robberies. And then in New York, of course, he's a beloved local architect and scion of the local scene. So he's really got a great life going on. And between 1869 and 1873, he carries out plans or consults on, because once he gets successful enough, Marm just sends him to other crews and he charges $20,000 to tell them how to rob places. It really is the the mastermind architect. Right. It's, he has a secret identity. This is just right, re- real life writing Pulp Fiction. Exactly. And so he robs 500000 from the Boylston Bank in Massachusetts. Auburn City Bank he gets only 31000 which is still a pretty good haul. South Kensington National Bank, National Bank of Baltimore, Lycoming Insurance Company for a break. Third National Bank, Saratoga County Bank, a real haul, 300000 which is $7.3 million. Then another couple of good hits, Wellsboro, Pennsylvania, and Milford, New Hampshire, both over $2 million in today's money. So he's doing great. In 1876, the team hits the Northampton, Massachusetts Bank. Again, same methodology. It's a successful robbery, but the safe by now banks are beginning to catch on. And instead of, (laughs) yeah, they're a little tired of this in the banking industry. Instead of cash, they're beginning to hold signature bonds and other unconvertible currency instruments. And so it's still backed, right? If there was a run on the bank, they could sell and move it, but robbers can't just walk in and carry it out. And that begins the sort of downswing of his career as the banks are holding less and less cash. They then botch the robbery of the Dexter main bank when the inside man gets cold feet. And so because he got cold feet, Draper and his guys beat him up and he winds up dying, which is a bad situation. And once Draper is beginning to kill people, Leslie begins to want out. And so he tells Marm that he's going to rob the Manhattan Savings Institution. It's going to be the biggest bank robbery in American history, which, spoiler, it would be. And, and here we come to the part of the story yeah. where it doesn't matter what kind of mastermind you are, but the yearning of the heart can pull you in a direction that it's just not too smart, Ken. Yeah, it is not. So the yearning of his pocketbook is telling him to switch gangs. So he starts talking to a different fence, a guy named John Traveling Mike Grady, and saying, 
if you give me a gang, I'm George Leonidas Leslie, beloved bank robber, and I will carry out this robbery for you. But also, he is beginning to canoodle with Draper's wife, Babe. And again, he picks the guy who has been on his case the whole time, the guy who willingly kills people in the course of the bank robbery, and the guy whose literal day job is to cause people to disappear. So, Babe, all I'm saying is she must have been a babe. She must have been played by, you know, Emma Roberts or something. Yeah, something like that, yes. Yeah. She has she has the cool biggest kidding. eyes and the clearest complexion of any woman in New York City, I feel. So, anyway, he and Babe are carrying on. Draper, of course, catches on to it. Babe, or something in Babe's handwriting, lures him to a rendezvous. He's got a bodyguard from John Traveling Mike Grady, but he's since he's going out to do an incredibly stupid and embarrassing thing that he doesn't want to get out into the criminal underworld, he says, you take the weekend off. He goes off to meet with Babe, vanishes on May 29th, 1878, is never seen again, until his dead body turns up in a field near Yonkers on June 4th. And that is the end of George Leonidas Leslie. He is shot many times with the gun that he gave Babe for her protection against Draper. A little ironic note there. It's the worst to be killed by irony. It is. Irony is the worst killer. And then, in the final irony, Marm takes Draper off the whole case, but she puts Jimmy Hope of Draper's gang, she promotes him to mastermind, and he carries out the robbery of the Manhattan Savings Institution, which gets $2.7 million in 1870s money, which is $81 million in our money, still the biggest bank robbery in American history. But again, it's mostly in non-negotiable securities. And so while they're dickering with the bank at what they can ransom the securities back to the bank for, the situation falls apart and a bunch of them are arrested. And it is at this trial that George Leonidas Leslie's name comes out and we all figure out what's going on with him. And, And that's how his cover is blown is at the trial of the people who carry out his bank robbery. But once more, they wind up with a bunch of stuff they can't move. And so this brings us to the baffling contradiction in American pop culture, which is in this period, people are super interested if you're in the old West wearing a Stetson, but if you're on the Eastern seaboard wearing a bowler hat or perhaps top hat, complete disinterest. Yes. (laughs) Never like if this guy had been, somehow operating in in the old west which of course he couldn't have because that was not the milieu there'd be 70 movies about him yeah <laughs> and here there's zippo so it's our duty then to uh, to fill the gap and uh, think of this in terms of a role playing scenario the most <laughs> in, obvious in one in what way is this not already a role playing scenario i ask you well the question is who who are you right are you the intrepid investigators on uh, his trail is it a drama system game where you're members of the gang are you members of a rival gang or is there some sort of nerd trope we could throw in there well i think that the fun way to play it is you're playing members of a bank robbing crew and you are maybe the people that Leslie is approaching to swap out. Uh, You're working for traveling Mike Grady instead of Marm Mandelbaum. She's the, you know, the rich fat kids from across the lake who you hate because they always do the great bank robberies. And so maybe that's your, you're in, maybe it's a having him show up as the mastermind for hire who gives you the case and then walks away gives you the autonomy of player characters right. and lets you do something that is not recorded by history. And then, right. you know, the, the grim ironic end that he comes to is something that can be sort of popped in at the end of the denouement. Right. Actually, you can be one of the gangs that consults with him. Like I said, he did consulting for other gangs. Yeah. So you've 
you know, carry off a number of heists with his consultation. And it can be a series of capers that you do. And then he comes to you and says, you guys have done a great job with my advice. Let me cut you in on the Manhattan Savings Institution deal. All you have to do is keep me safe from Marm Mendelbaum and Shane Draper. And my own dumb decision making. (laughs) And my own terrible decision making. And so a, a sort of a structure where you've had him as sort of the M or the voice on the tape, and then you have to sort of save and protect him. That's a fun little narrative twist. And of course, by now, maybe you've learned everything there is to know. And you're like, if we save him, we're out half the take. So maybe you guys are the kind of players who turn him over to uh, Shang Draper and help expose him to the wrath of irony. Or maybe you save his life and the guy found in Yonkers is a convenient uh, body double and you help Leslie sort of scuttle away to Philadelphia and live out a life under a fourth identity with his lovely wife, Molly. The plan was, in fact, for him to go west with Molly, so maybe that's what he does. Yeah, that you could uh, have a, a follow-up episode where, where you get those Stetsons and they make 70 movies about Right. You. And the nerd troping, I think, you know, ever since Dracula 2000, where the cool Ocean's Eleven gang busts in and steals the coffin of Dracula, I've always felt the heist where the thing you heist is the adventure is a great, you know, uh, opening gun for something. And certainly you could have a vampire in Gilded Age New York. I don't see a reason you couldn't be heisting that. You could have a cursed ruby that sends demons out. It's just any number of possible things that a uh, weird Gilded Age millionaire would keep in his vault. And then in maybe if you wanted to do sort of a Gilded Age Unknown Armies type thing, you've stolen this thing and you're like, what the heck is that? And that leads you into the occult underground. While meanwhile, occult millionaire Jim Fisk is sending all of his own weird magic operatives after you because you've stolen his magic silver spoon that gives him all of his power. Right. And unbeknownst to you, you're able now to climb the uh, occult underground of Gilded Age New York City. And and fortunately, a magical silver spoon allows you to generate corpses that look like you. So it's a very convenient thing to have stolen. Once you've got the magic silver spoon, you can find Johnny corpse lookalike or whatever somewhere in in the largest city in America and the greatest hive of criminality in the hemisphere. Well, uh, now that we've uh, figured all that out, and uh, it's time for us to, like true masterminds, segue into another segment. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... 
in Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlatha tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The Cat in the Tree, the Rising Triangle, the Forking Paths, welcome us once more into that most sturdy and yet most airy of huts, the Narrative Hut. And uh, Robin, today in the Narrative Hut, we're going to Northrop fry things, as we tend to do when left to our own devices. And today, uh, Northrop fry in the course of uh, the Anatomy of Criticism, mentions that uh, science fiction and fantasy stories, basically, as we would call it, procedurals, but with magic in, are romances. And that's the term that was used for them back in the 14th century, and it's the term that one could use for them now if romance had not been taken by people kissing pirates in an entirely different section of the bookstore. But right. or, or, or you could use the term adventures. Right, yes. But I like saying romance just because it messes with people. But we know that with Fry, that as, as I say, if you put magic in, and usually pirates, it's a romance. But what about no magic procedurals, Robin? What about detective stories? What about techno thrillers? What about crime stories? Policier, are those romances? He questioned with a question mark. Right. And, and of course, the reason we are interested in this is that procedurals are the form of narrative that we are most often emulating in role playing. Now, I and others have done work uh, with uh, more dramatic narratives or something that you that Fry would consider mimetic fiction, uh, things that simulate the psychological novel or play. But still, of the people who are having a game night tonight, the majority of them are still playing procedurals. And so a lot of my analytical work into story and into how stories work has been trying to find the structures and find, you know, where does this fit into the system of, of narrative? And Fry's, as you point out, is he sort of glances at popular fiction, but it's not his main interest. He's interested in literature. And this is part of the phenomenon that has led to people developing critical terms for high literature and then trying to apply them to this other less explored form of the procedural. So where does a procedural actually fit in this system? So according to Fry, a romance is sort of one step down the ladder of modes from myth. And the difference there is one of belief is that uh, myths are stories that people uh, at least at one time believed. And we can maybe in some other segment, uh, 10 years from now, uh, try and unpack what belief means in that context. Mm -hmm. But uh, part of a, uh, a, a faith system that at least some people subscribe to. And then the romance, instead of being the story of gods, they're sort of stories of half gods, as Fry puts it. They are their heroes. Now, he sort of files that in the kind of tragedy uh, wing of, of the House of Narrative, because many of the original romances that you're referring to from the uh, medieval era go all the way to the, the death 
of the hero or king. And so, you know, Arthur being a notable example of that. And so because they go from birth to death, that they have an elegiac quality and therefore belong in the tragedy section. But procedurals kind of knock that cock a hoop because they are about people getting what they want. And people getting what they want, I think, is the perhaps the most salient part that defines a popular fiction, because that's why it's popular, because we are vicariously, uh, along with the characters, getting what we want because they get what they want, as opposed to the more tragic side of literature or storytelling, which offers us a catharsis, something else we need. But, you know, the Hamlet is not about someone getting what they want. Gatsby is not about someone getting what they want. But Miss Marple or Batman uh, or Reacher is about someone overcoming adversity to get what they want. And what they want is usually order. So justice. uh, Where does this fit? Does that mean that procedurals are actually comedies because they lend themselves to a union and reintegration and that the Perot naming who the murderer is, is essentially like the marriage at the end of a, a comedy that ends most conventionally with a marriage between a mismatched couple who find harmony. Yeah, I think that if you look at early detective fiction, especially the work of the great John Dixon Carr, quite often the job of the detective is, yes, to solve the crime and bring justice and heal the world, but also it's to get the romantic leads together. That the hero is in love with the girl and he's a suspect or she's a suspect or her dad is a suspect or some reason they can't be together until this murder is solved. And Carr really leans into it. And I think it is because he is among the most romantic of the mystery writers. It's one of the reasons I like him best. But you even see that in the more conventional or staid sort of Agatha Christie type mysteries. And many of those also turn on illicit love or wrong love uh, that must then be healed or fixed or found out uh, to heal society. So it is a marriage in the way that, you know, it performs a marital purpose socially, even if no two people actually, you know, kiss and exchange rings at the end. This wrongful love that caused murder or whatever is exposed and cleansed from the world. And that is another big part of even very modern sort of, you know, drunk Norwegian cops hunting a serial killer are in some ways, you know, policing love. They're taking the bad love of the serial killer and exposing it to the air and and cleansing it and removing it from the perfect, pristine society of Norway or whatever. Right. Right. So the John Dixon Carr detective in this is uh, half a god and the half god they are as Cupid. Mm-hmm. And I suppose... <laughs> Although Dr. Fell is at least a third Bacchus as well when we're talking about gods. Right. So that brings <laughs> us to the detective who is fixing wrong love, I guess, brings us more to uh, Bacchus or Dionysus, who has uh, his tough and scary side as well, or perhaps mm-hmm. is doing the uh, work of Aphrodite. And I think many of the heroes of techno-thrillers, uh, which again have no outward fantastical elements also fit a mythic framework because, you know, who is Reacher but but Hercules in a modern guise? I mean, I personally, if we're if we're asking, I personally think he is almost perfectly Theseus. Because if you remember Theseus's adventures, he shows up, no one knows that he's the king's son, so he's anonymous. He wanders around Greece and what does he do? He finds people who are predating on travelers who are causing trouble ruining a town or murdering people. And he, 
he ends them. He susses out what's going on. He figures out Procrustes' bed. He figures out the pine bending guy. He figures out all of these problems. And unlike Heracles, who we all love, but does a bare minimum of detectiving, the other half of Reacher, and one of the characters in one of the novels calls him Sherlock Homeless, which is one of the great owns of your own character that I think anyone has ever put in a book. He also solves crimes. And so I feel like he is very much Theseus. No one knows that he's a demigod uh, as he wanders the earth. And uh, this is why various meth heads try and step to someone described as six foot five and just this monstrous Adonis of a man. And they're like, oh, I can take him. So it's the yes, same deal. He's literally he's larger than life. Theseian anonymity that cloaks his, his demigod status until of course things go down and he has to elbow everybody in the face. But you know, definitely the sort of the Heracles pattern, except that the demands of serial novels being what they are, he doesn't get only 12 labors. He's up like 30 labors, I think now. And just like Theseus only killed about five guys in the versions of myth that we have now. But I'm sure that in every town in Attica, probably Boeotia, probably all over Middle Greece, they had some story of the jerk in their town that Theseus took out on his way to Athens to become king. And I feel like that is definitely the model that sort of Reacher is slotting himself into, even if Lee Child has you know, no particular Theseian goals in mind. I, I think that it's, it's just one of those ways that Western literature works, that you find yourself writing towards these fry-like structures. It has also been said that Oedipus Rex is one of the earliest detective stories, but mm-hmm. that one, the detective discovers that he done it. Yep. <laughs> and even though Sophocles wrote sequels, uh, not repeatable in the same way and not uh, as, as detective And is there another sort of godlike figure that we might look to as the inspiration for detective who is not explicitly rectifying problems of love? I think Judge D is another good example that that sort of the, I mean, we see him now mostly through Van Gulick's, what I want to say, westernization, I'll be polite, of the Chinese originals, but those stories go back you know, I don't, you, I, you may be the Judge D expert in this conversation, but they're set in the Tang Dynasty, and I assume they go back to the, the Ming trying to cast themselves as the, as the Tang. And again, his job is to do the Confucian thing. He brings everything back into order under heaven. And he, you know, love is, I don't want to say irrelevant. I'm sure that at some point Judge D involves kissing, but Judge D is very much a, a figure of heavenly justice in, in those senses, right? And if I knew more Chinese mythology, I would probably know whichever Chinese demigod Judge D was patterned after. So, in essence, the procedural is a fusion of tragedy and, and comedy mm-hmm. and is also definitely under the umbrella of romance because it uh, takes the gods and renders them one step human, but not as human as mimetic fiction does in modern detective novel series often bolted onto the procedural problem solving. There will also be sort of a continuing emotional continuity of that character. And you see them, their kids or their ex-husband or whatever, meet new people and kids and get married. And that is the more psychologically mimetic veneer on top of this tragic comic or comedo tragic romance layer that, gives people the ability to relate to it because we've all been trained now to look at narratives in terms of whether we identify with the characters, which is something you identify with a detective, you don't identify with with the gods, and 
also something that we want to critique as to whether it is realistic or not. When, of course, we want to think it's realistic, but if these things were actually realistic, they would be disappointing and they wouldn't be about people getting what they want. But I think what we want, Ken, is to uh, wrap up this segment and see what lies on the other side of this here exciting commercial. Protect this podcast from criminal architectural masterminds by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Craig Maloney, John Rogers, Joshua Hillerup, Ross Ireland, and Steve Hammond. It's time once more to enter that most ill-defined of huts, the huts where crackpotism meets alternate history, where dowsing jousts with alien astronauts theories. And when I say the word alien, over in the corner, the uh, Nordic alien and the gray alien, their ears or lack of ears perk up, depending on which one it is, as they sip their kombucha. We look out the window, we hear the alien big cat screaming on the moor because it's once more time for the elliptony hut. And this time around, beloved backer Jake Moss wants to get some more CanCon in, although I guess it wasn't Canadian at the time. We are going to look at the Island of Demons, which exists, or does it, near Newfoundland and Labrador. So, Ken, this starts with a map. You're the mapper. Take us to the map. Okay, the map is the world map of a guy named Johannes Reusch, who had traveled to Canada, would become Canada, with Cabot. And when he came back, he was a trained cartographer. He'd been to the New World. They said, update Ptolemy's map. We're doing a new edition of the geography Give us a good world map. And so he draws the good world map. And right there in the sort of what's called the Gulf of Greenland on the map is a pair of islands. And it looks kind of like a a hamburger if you take the meat out or a macaron if you take the filling out. Annotated Isle of Demons. Demons assaulted ships near these islands, which were avoided, but not without peril. And that's big news to everyone. They're very excited. Now, there used to be an island called Satanazes. That was an island that a Venetian cartographer put on a map of the Atlantic in 1424, and it was to the north of Antilia, which was sort of the pretend island that some people say was, you know, early mariners seeing Cuba. Some people say it was just sort of, they couldn't put Atlanta, so they had to put something. Anyway, Satanazes is an island to the north of that, and it was colored black because it was named Satan, and it showed up on maps through about 1493, although... In 1463, it got renamed Salvaga, but I do want to argue that in 1436, it was called the Isle of the Hand of Satan, and someone in the 18th century, when people were allowed to come up with cool theories and not get yelled at, said maybe... (laughs) There were fewer fun ruiners back then. Maybe this is something from uh, the Arabian Nights, where there's a giant hand that comes up out of the ocean and grabs ships. And they just moved it from the Indian Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. This was someone trying to be reasonable about the Isle of the Hand of Satan. Right. Well, if it's attached to a hand, whoever's below the hand underwater right. can move around, right? Well, as we as we learned from the documentary The Eternals, I think it's some sort of Jack Kirby monster that's down there. But anyway, the Isle of Demons catches on. People love it. And it gets a boost when a young woman named Marguerite de la Roque she was the cousin or niece of a fellow named Roberval, who had been appointed to be the governor of Canada by the French king. Right. And often you will see her 
also called the Robovall in different accounts. Right. Anyway, she is going across the Atlantic, and she apparently becomes a little bored and meets a guy on the ship. Maybe he's a sailor. They don't really say. But her cousin gets mad at this sort of carrying on, and he maroons her on the Isle of Demons in 1541 or 1542. In, in other versions, uh, she's his niece. Yeah, like I say. But he's still in loco parentis on this boat and won't have any of that. Right. And as a responsible surrogate parent, he maroons her. On the Isle of Demons. Right. And she's with an old nurse and with her lover boy. Yes. And she has a baby on the island, but everyone dies on the island except her. She kills a polar bear, Robin. That's how cool Marguerite Delaroque is. And she is rescued by either Basque or Breton fishermen, depending on which version of the story you read. And they carry her back to Europe, where she meets the queen. And the queen is so impressed by her, she writes her down in her little journal of cool stories that she keeps. And so it winds up in a geography by a fellow named Jacques Thevet. In uh, 1575, he tells her story in some detail. The queen has also told her story. Possibly pronounced Thevet would be Possibly Thevet. Can't say at this remove. Anyway... Some fun ruiners say she was not marooned on the Isle of Demons at all, on the basis that the Isle of Demons does not exist. Uh, some say she was marooned on the Ile de la Demoiselle, which sounds more like the place you would have marooned a maiden. That's at the far eastern tip of Quebec. And the people of Harrington Island say, no, sir, she was marooned on our desolate spit of hell, which is somewhat less to the east than uh, the Ile de la Demoiselle. But I think, I guess it's a... Cottage industry there at the mouth of the St. Lawrence, deciding what island Marguerite Delaroque was marooned on. There's plenty of desolate islands that, that she could have been marooned on. Yeah, her cousin slash uncle was spoiled for choice in terms of desolate places to maroon his niece slash cousin. So, anyways, that's sort of a, a true tale of demonry. It shows up on the map again, a Nueva Francia map by Giacomo Gastaldi in 1556. There's a big giant island where Newfoundland is or rather a big giant group of islands where Newfoundland is, and the northern chunk of that group is the Isola di Demoni, and he draws little flying demons on it, but they're only on the northern tip of the Isola de Demoni, which again would put it towards the northern tip of Newfoundland. Then, as I say, Jacques Thevet writes his book, and he gives us some information. He says that the island is big, it's beautiful, it's uninhabited because it's full of demons. Passing sailors describe it, quote, it was as if they were buffeted by a great tempest, and they heard in the air about the tops and the masts of their vessels human voices making a great din, but there was no form to their speech, only such murmuring as you might hear in the middle of a public hall on a market day. And he says that uh, Marguerite described frightful sounds which the evil spirits made around them, and they tried to break down their abode and showed themselves in various forms of frightful animals. And often in the night, Marguerite heard cries so loud it seemed as if more than 5,000 men were assembled together. And Marguerite says, with prayer and vigilance and a rifle, or a musket, I guess, she was able to keep the demons at bay, and after the first two or three months, she really stopped hearing the demons. They basically stopped pestering her, so that was good. Right. Fun runners have proposed that the frightful beasts were bears, and you've found a version where she actually fights and defeats a bear, Yeah. and that the, all of these horrific cries that people are hearing are bird cries, particularly loons. Right. And uh, we've previously established on the show the mystical, scary quality of the loon. The 19th century American folklorist Charles M. Skinner uh, wrote about Marguerite's story, and as he was wont to do with 
indigenous legends added all sorts of cool details and thrills. And so in his version, Marguerite encounters screaming beasts with horned heads and wings. So she's meeting full-on Jabberwockies in, right. uh, in yeah, his popular version. Not a good scene. Other people suggest uh, the demons that she saw might have been walruses, because that would have been a thing that she would have had no conception of what that was like, and that would have messed with Right. Her. Well, we, again, we've discussed walrus revenge extensively on this Exactly, podcast. yeah. There's no shortage of Arctic demonry. I, I think we're establishing this. Anyway, the last time it shows up on a map is on the Jan Jansen 1622 map of the Western Hemisphere, where he puts an E dos demonios northeast of Newfoundland, like out almost in the Atlantic, in the real Atlantic by then, no longer cuddled up next to the shore where Marguerite would have been marooned or whatever. And so it sort of begins to float back out to the misty mid-Atlantic, where perhaps it was born as the island of Satanazes in the 15th century. Many people suggest Queerpon Island off the northeast tip of Newfoundland. It's right there on the southern end of the Strait of Belle Isle, and it's where you can sort of guesstimate some of the uh, map islands were, and it's another possible place for her to have been marooned. And fun fact, Queerpon Island is just east of Lanzo Meadows, the Viking site on the toppy tip of Newfoundland. So. Maybe Viking ghosts are fighting the demons, or maybe, as many fun ruiners before and since have suggested, the whole Isle of Demons is a game of telephone from the Vikings describing the Skraelings that they had to fight in Vinland. And the Vikings, of course, describe the Skraelings as yelling like crazy. They're naked and weirdly painted. They have feathers and stuff in their hair. And they are, you know, to the Vikings, clearly some sort of berserk demon warrior creature. <laughs> Which is a beautiful reversal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Vikings afraid of the terrifying other. Yeah, see how they like it for a change. Anyway, the notion that the Skraelings become demons once that gets to Venice or into Johan Reusch's hands, and then that gets just fed back around. And so that it might have originally started as the island of Skraelings, that this is where there's a bunch of guys who will yell at you all the time and try and kill you. And guys who yell at you all the time and try and kill you is, of course, what Royce writes at the very first thing there on the island of demons. So that's a possibility. In the world of culture, there is a 2004 play by a writer named Robert Chafe called Isle of Demons, which tells uh, Marguerite's marooning story. And in that, uh, she does encounter demons, but it's possible, Ken, that the... Uh, the demons are reflections of her own inner demons. The, the demons are the friends she met along the way. Right. But for our purposes, <laughs> clearly, the reason that some people find the Isle of Demons and some people don't is that, like other terrifying magical islands, it appears when needed for purposes of the story and, and other times disappears. So that the player characters, whether they are modern or 17th century, can encounter this terrible island and... Uh, as it did for Marguerite, it remains there for as long as you're there while you're marooned. It doesn't sink beneath the waves. That's a different myth. Yeah. But while, while you're stuck there with the monsters and uh, waiting for Portuguese fishermen or perhaps your own resourcefulness to rescue you, you've got a bunch of uh, scary jabberwocky creatures. And I mean, you know, that could be a night gaunt or something, right? Yeah, it could be anything. It could be night gaunts. It could be the gnafka, the horned uh, thing of the ice could be, you know, Byaki. Who can say, right? There's all manner of scary 
Lovecraft monsters that bip in. And if the island floats in and out of the dreamlands, yeah, it, there could be gugs, Robin. Gugs right. could be there. And that could explain why it's there sometimes and not. Is it Sometimes yeah. it manifests in the waking world, but most of the time it's in the dreamlands. So if you are in need of a way to get physically to the dreamlands instead of sleeping your way there, which is hazardous in its own way, and you've annoyed all of the ghouls you know and can't go down any of the ghoul tunnels, uh, you might want to take a boat ride out to the coast of Newfoundland and uh, see if you can uh, find the uh, Isle of Demons and uh, make your way to to the dreamlands uh, through that. And, you know, while you're in a boat, you're riding Cthulhu's greatest uh, fear. So that's a that's a good thing there, too. Yeah. You probably don't even have to bring a blameless niece or cousin. Yeah, you probably shouldn't. I, I don't recommend that at all. This podcast is against firmly against marooning people, especially not even especially just we're full stop. We're anti-marooning here on this show. Yeah, don't maroon. Well, now that we've staked a moral claim, I think it's time for us to uh, <laughs> wrap up this episode, but we'll be back for more bold political statements and slogans next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Arc Dream. Dork Tower and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast unmarooned by joining estimable backers. Todd W. Olson. Ben Vincent. Brian Thomas. Chad Ward. And Chris Farrell. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Grab our latest design. I hate this stupid argument. Please start the next stupid argument. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Blue Sky, he's robindlaws.bisky.social. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>